you know what I'm going to ask? You know what I'm going to say? Is that a dumb question? <laughs> you just knew it was, didn't you? You did. I, I always, I always kind of know these things, you know? <laughs> I've worked with you long enough. Do you, do, you, do you have an idea of where you're going? So it's, it's one of the big reinvented names, but it was big for a very long time. It, re it really was, Justin. The Dunville Company. Now, for many people back in the day, Dunvilles would have been really Belfast and sort of by extension Ulster whiskey. I mean, we think of Bush Mills as being the big name. The Watts Distillery down in Derry was a massive name for a long time. But Dunvilles really superseded all of those. And it really was a symbol of Belfast, if I'm honest. So it was. Now... They started the out in tea, did they? Yeah, well, it started out, they joined a tea importers called Napier and Napier in Bank Lane in Belfast. And it was a John Dumville, D-U-M-V-I-L-L, -L, who joined it. Now, blending, sometimes in whiskey circles, blending is seen as being the, the lesser of the single malt craze. But blending, the art of blending really is to be more than your constituent parts. So it's really to bring out the the best of the different elements that you have. So whether it's tea or whiskey, it's the same principles. Now, John Dumble went into the tea blending industry and then in 1937, they launched Dumville's VR, which was their whiskey. Now, that was the year Queen Victoria ascended the throne. So it was... Anyone who knows 1837, you mean? Sorry, 1837. 1837. My apologies, just. My apologies. That's all right. I know you're a stickler for for the for facts. Well, well I, I I I I was waiting for disgusted Tunbridge Wells to be emailing in saying Queen Victoria wasn't born and then she was dead. Uh, you know, you know the usual. Oh um, yes. No. Well, it was 1837, and Queen Victoria ascended the throne. Now, anyone who knows anything about Belfast knows that pretty much all of Belfast is is named after Queen Victoria. They they tried to ingratiate themselves quite quite a lot uh, with they, Victoria. They were after the city status, but they had to wait for years after she visited to get oh, it. Fifty one years they had to wait before they got it. Now, so that was okay. Once they had that set up, they traded bought in whiskey for a long time. Now, as you well know, this is a, a very sort of standard practice these days that you buy whiskey in from other sources and brand it yourself. I mean, that's a very long held practice that's been going on for a very, very long time. They were doing so well that in 1869, they decided to establish their own distillery. Now it was up the Grosvenor Road. And at the time that was seen as being a little bit outside the city. I mean, we think of it now as being more or less central to the building. Yeah, like it's it's just over the motorway. I've been in there, you know. I mean, I just have to tell you that and rub it in. <laughs> I've been in it. You were going to say that. <laughs> they built that because it was on the other side of the railway station, you know, so they had automatic links to, to, the, to the railway line so they could move stuff about very handy. Now, this was, it was a huge, huge operation. For instance, they had a 160-foot tall chimney, malting houses, warehouses. They had a capacity to distill 40,000 gallons a week, which is hu a huge amount. That's that, that, that's that's a lot, isn't it? It is yeah. quite a lot. Yeah, it is. But you're, I mean, you're talking the whole the list of what goes on. Now we can consult our good friend Alfred Bernard, who gives us a whole rundown of what all they yeah. had. Yeah, we've actually done a, a podcast about him in particular, haven't we? Yeah, we did. On a previous podcast, we covered Alfred Bernard's 
adventures around the British Isles. But he goes into great detail on the Royal Irish Distillery in Belfast. I mean, he tells you that the pot stills, they had three of them, three old pot stills containing 11,240, 6,551 and 5,255 gallon capacities. So he goes into great detail on that. And I'll not bore people too much with, with all of that. It goes to show that it was a huge operation. They did all the malting and the distilling all on site. But this was a big company. They had offices all over the UK, Newcastle, London, Liverpool, uh, obviously in Belfast. They had warehouses across the city and they ended up, they distilled pot still whiskies, malt whiskies and grain whiskies eventually. Basically they're doing everything. They were doing everything. Now there's this when you go to certain establishments uh, and ask what happened to Irish whiskey, they tell you that oh, Irish whiskey failed to adopt the coffee method of continuous distillation. The, the column still, they wanted to keep it traditional. It's just not true. Because they had a coffee still as well, I believe. They, they did. They yeah. had coffee still installed as well. And one of the things that they actually did was they exported a lot of whiskey across to Scotland because the Scottish blenders were using Dunville's green whiskey. They were their continuous whiskey because they couldn't get enough of it. So whenever people say, oh, Irish whiskey didn't adopt, a lot of the Irish brands didn't adopt the, the blended stuff and, the, and grain whiskies, But it didn't mean that they weren't making it and they weren't exporting it. Dunvilles were exporting a huge amount of coffee distilled grain whiskey, and a lot more, uh, an awful lot of it went to Scotland. Dunvilles introduced another brand, Three Crowns, etc, etc. What did they do that for? Was that, was that brand extension or, or, would, or a different mix? No, it would have been it would have been sort of brand extension, and it would have been basically just bringing out another style of whiskey that they probably thought would have meet another demographic of people's yeah. tastes. You know, maybe I think it was distilled slightly longer and uh, use sherry cash for the maturing. Yeah. Well, yeah. you see that, yeah, this is it. But it would have been essentially just to have a different style of whiskey out. You know, reach yeah. a different demographic. When they had this established. There was a huge fire. Now, we've talked about fires before. When other people are talking about the history of the Dunville distillery, a lot of them skip over the fact that the, the fire broke out in March 1878. This was a huge fire. It was established what was seen as being just outside the city, but it was beside the train line. The fire is very close to the Pound and Sandy Row as well. I mean, it this is a heavily built up residential built up residential area because people walked to work then. Yes. Now, the fire broke out at 20 minutes to 8 in the still house and no one really knows what happened. It just it, it caught fire. But it burnt for a considerable period of time and it ended up ruining or damaging 19,000 pounds worth of equipment. Now that's equivalent to about five million pounds worth of damage today. Did this all burn overnight? It was burning, it burnt overnight. Right. Now they managed that it didn't do the massive sort of conflagration into the warehouse because the, the, the warehouses were in another part of the city. Right. So, so it wasn't like Dublin. It didn't, it, it wasn't didn't, like it, Dublin. Right. It uh, wasn't the warehouse caught fire. It was the actual still itself. Right. Okay. Now, yeah. They were lucky because a river called the Blackstaff River runs very close to where the distillery was and they were able to pull the water out of that yeah. to put out the fire. But you can imagine that was it must have been a well, a huge devastating people that know Belfast are gonna say they're gonna say there's no there's there's no river near there now. There's no, <laughs> no. it's all culverted. It's all culverted. It's all, yeah. it's all covered over now, yes. This would have been devastating to production. But and this is the thing with distilleries, 
when something like that happens, you'll always have enough supply aging to cover you at the time. And then you can always sort of make it up. Mm -hmm. But it was, there was huge inquiry and stuff into it. Uh, the people who were in charge had plenty of time to come down. The insurance paid out. They would have been able to see this fire oh, from the absolutely. other side of the city where they lived. Oh, wouldn't they? They, they would have. They would have. To give you an idea of the scale of the business here, £19,000 is the amount of damage. That was about £5 million in today's money. The company was insured for £100,000. So that tells you roughly what the company was worth. Wow. It's a, you know, a multi, multi million pound industry. Dunville's were known as being a, a very generous employer at a time. They'd issued statements saying that their offices would be closing an hour early because they wanted to give uh, people an extra hour off uh, working off their working day because they thought they should spend more time with their families. So they, were, they had this reputation of being a, a very family orientated business. They set up football clubs, they set up boating club, they took the, the workers on day trips to, to the likes of Port Rush and to Larne. And they, were, and they weren't even Quakers. <laughs> and they weren't even Quakers, no, they, were, they, were, <laughs> they weren't, weren't Quakers at all. Cabries and Port Sunlight and all did this. They, they did oh, this yes. sort of thing, looked after the employees. Yeah. Yes, they did. After the fire, I just have to read the exact quote from the, the newspaper report. It said, by the... By the fire, we understand that about 150 men will be thrown out of employment. But the, pro the thing was, they rebuilt it and re-employed lots of the workers. Yeah. So they took them back on. Dunville's carried on. They really went from strength to strength. And it was a very family-orientated business. Responsible employers. Now, anyone who knows anything about, about Belfast will know of Dunville Park up near the Royal Victoria Hospital, just off the Falls Road. Yeah, used to be an army base during the Troubles, yeah. They bought that, they installed a, night, a beautiful fountain, which if you've been there now, it's maybe not just so beautiful. I think it got they, diggied up a couple of years ago, but back in the it, day it would have been state-of-the-art. Yeah, It yeah. would have been, I mean, I, I can't remember what it cost. Uh, I tried to look, but I can't remember what it cost, but it would have been a fortune, an absolute didn't, fortune. Didn't Roy Dalton build the fountain for them or something like that? So you can, you, as soon as you say Roy Dalton, you go, yeah. oh, I know what that looks like. You know what I mean? It was opened on four acres of ground. People, people these days don't appreciate the fact that a good clean supply of fresh water back in the, the latter half of the 19th century was a bit of a luxury, really, especially in and around a, a city where getting fresh water supply, you know, might not have been just as easy. So the fact that they paid for this and brought this fountain and this hugely ornate fountain was, was a real boon for that area and for the workers. Now, around that area, you have streets associated with the distillery. So, I mean, you have Excise Street. The one that I always like is Sorella Street. Now, Sorella Street is Italian for one of the Dunville family, uh, Sarah Dunville, and it was named after her. But there's another thing. This goes to show you the, the impact that they had on Belfast as a city. Sorella Street, named after Sarah Dunville. There's also still running the Sorella Trust. It's wow. a Queen's, Queen's University, and it's a fund that was established in 1873, used by set up by William Dunville in honour of it, or his sister Sarah, who, who died quite young, unfortunately. That still runs today. Now, I just have to read this little snippet of it. It's a bit more detailed on it. It's very, very philanthropic, this, because the company, per se, hasn't really been in operation since 1936 when it was liquidated. Well, it's 150 years later, Justin. I'll, ju I'll just read this quote here. It might well have been distilled at 
Dunville's of Belfast at one time the largest whisky distillery in the world. Scotch whisky was well behind. Now R.G. Dunville was now in control of the family business. The Sorella Trust had been set up in memory of his late aunt Sarah Dunville and administered by his uncle. In 1874 the Dunville student ships were endowed by the Trust. £45 for one year and £100 for the next. Now they were open to female students. It was 1881 before women entered the college and it was 1906 before a lady won it. But the fact that it was open to women was very forward progressive thinking. The value can be compared with eight shillings and five pence, which was what a young spinner earned in a week. They're yeah. given they're potentially given a female student forty-five pounds when the average wage for a weekly wage was eight shillings and five pence. This is a huge amount of money at the time. Well that would um, keep you for a year easily, wouldn't it? It, I mean, it really would. The Sorella Trust, there's actually a plaque with Sarah Dunville on it, in, still in Queen's University uh, building, over in the medical building. I've actually seen it now. Unfortunately, a few years ago, it, it came off the wall, and there's a, there's a little chip in it and a little break, so it, it needs to get fixed. But I saw it, well, say last year. Yeah, it must have was about a year ago I, I actually saw Did it. Did I ever tell you about the time I went to a tourism conference in there, Marty? And I checked in at the Medical Biological Centre and somebody posted, get well soon to me. I thought you were going to say they started doing experiments. It would, ex <laughs> it would explain a lot. <laughs> One of the things about it is I tried, I've been trying to get a list of the people who have been awarded the scholarship because it still, it still goes on today, as I say. It's top um, secret, but is it? It seems to be that I, I can't find anyone who sits on the board of trustees or I can't find out who it's awarded to. But if you quick Google brings up that in 2017, Claire Burnett uh, from the School of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering won what's described as the prestigious Dunville Scholarship. Now, this is a postgraduate award and it was established in 1873 using funds from the Sorella Trust. Two awards of £2,500 per annum are allocated each year, one in engineering and physical sciences and the other one in biological sciences. So the students get £2,500. I'd love to get a list of who all has won that because all the work that has been done over the years and all of the you know the medical advancements that have come out of Queens, the fact that that's still benefiting the world is is to me that's impressive. You know, I mean, very forward thinking, very progressive, really helping endowments to to really worthwhile causes. You know, unfortunately, the whole story of the Dunville Distillery is essentially tied up with the family. You can't break from what happened with the family. They didn't have a lot of luck, really, did they? They didn't towards the end. There is a fabulous website on the Dunville family, Dunville, D-U-M-V-I-L-L-E dot org, which has been done by a member of the Dunville family, and it goes through a huge amount of detail of what happened to each one of them. Robert Dunville took over as the third chairman. He was, in many ways, uh, again, a bit, a bit of a, a bit of a, well, a bit of a playboy as such. Um, well, not, not in the bad sense of the word. Balloon pilot, a yachting enterprises. And but so that's on. the sort of thing a young man with money about town did then. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but he, he. They all seem to die quite young. Now, John Spencer Dunville, he died in the First World War. His brother was the balloonist. He joined the Royal flying corps at the time really progressed on through that but he died quite young the last of the dunvilles to survive was 
a young girl called Una. And she was the last of the whole family connected with the distillery. Now, she had Down syndrome before it was known as Down syndrome. And her parents were advised to send her away to be institutionalised. These things were obviously not that well understood at the time. But the Dunvilles sent her to an institution called Normansfield. Now, there's a book, and I have it in my hand, Tales of Normansfield, The Langdon Dow Legacy. Langdon Down was the institution, Normansfield was the institution, Langdon Down was really the person who discovered Down's syndrome, what actually caused it. And they spent a lot of time with Una and conversing with her parents. When she was sent over, obviously they had to pay for this. And initially a fee of around 250 guineas was spent on her care. That's a lot of money. It's an awful lot of money. The family spent a lot of time in London and would have went and saw her quite regularly. They always... Uh, sent word for her care and how she was responding to some treatments and I suppose probably looking for a cure. Because the life expectancy of people afflicted like that wasn't very long then, was it really? No, it really wouldn't have been. And lots of people would have sent their family members away and really never bothered with them again. They wouldn't really have, have spent any real time with them or really spent a lot of time wondering about their care. That wasn't the case for Una. They asked after her all the time. They wrote, constantly wrote letters and so on and so forth. And when they went to London, they really went and spent time with her and took her out. I suppose in them days, back then, you might not have had the, the support mechanisms. They could, have, they could have afforded to have plenty of staff to look after her needs at home. But probably on medical advice, sending her away was probably what they thought was the best. Now, prohibition is bound to hit the uh, whiskey business dramatically whenever it came into force in America because bound to have adversely affected it. Prohibition had a devastating effect on, certainly on Irish whiskey, reputation. You have to remember, lots of people were still drinking in America and prior to prohibition in the States, Irish whiskey was the most sought after in the world. It was the seen as being the best product. During prohibition, lots of people got a taste for scotch whiskey and the very strong peated flavour. And one of the reasons for that was a little bit of heavily peated scotch goes a very long way. So you can buy in imported gut rot whiskey, add in a bit of heavily peated scotches and it flavours the whole barrel. Plus, a lot of people might not know that alcohol wasn't totally prohibited in the US. You could get a prescription for it. It was seen as being a medicinal product. Yeah. You could get a prescription from the doctor, and Winston Churchill quite famously got it whenever he, he <laughs> went over it. I don't, think, I don't think Churchill would have lasted too long without a drop of booze. <laughs> now, uh. so actually two of the best-known names in pharmaceutical and, and retail in the US, Walgreens and CVS, that's where they owe their origins to, the fact that they were able to sell booze. Yep. So su suddenly everybody went down with these medical complications that required a, a, a bottle of, of uh, scotch whiskey. But obviously the peated medicinal, peated chemical tasting scotches were seen as being slightly more medicinal than, than the sort of more pot still, oily, flavoursome Irish whiskies. They weren't as, if you like, as intense, the Irish ones. The Irish ones have a different style you'll, you'll often hear it said that they were much lighter that's not necessarily strictly true pot still whiskey was was extremely famous and had a very different type of texture and a very rich body but not as not as medicinal tasting that's probably the best way of putting that so the last heir and, and chairman of dunville uh, Ro uh, robert lambert dunville he died in 1931 uh, yes the company then 
began to flounder. I mean, it, obviously, we're getting it's getting, you know, heading towards the end of prohibition, but they, they still managed to remain profitable. But come nineteen thirty six, they still end up getting liquidated anyway. Well, Most bizarre. It's, a, it's still a very sort of strange idea, as you say. Sort of five years after Robert Dunville passed away, the company on the thirty first of December decide to go into voluntary liquidation. They, they were making money at the time, but they had huge amounts of stock. They had enough whiskey. It took years after they closed for all the whiskey to disappear. It really was a huge operation. And when they closed the thing down, they were still selling whiskey for years and years and years to come. Now they give, the trustees were given about triple, over triple what their shares were worth at the time. So right. they had a one pound share. They were given, you know, like three pounds, three and a half pounds for per share. So that surely they would have been bought up in a merger and an acquisition if they'd have put it up for sale to, to some other business because there was big conglomerates in the world by that point. Well, the thing is, they had tried to expand. They had bought Bladnock Distillery over in in Scotland and had spent an awful lot of money on it, and that didn't really pan out that well for them. There was a whole lot of factors. Now, one of the things. That I think a lot of people might not maybe appreciate was the temperance movement hadn't really gone away, even though <laughs> prohibition had ceased in the states, and they had done very well through prohibition. There was still that alcohol's a bit of a trade that you might not necessarily want to get into. James Craig, who was the first prime minister of the state of Northern Ireland, that's where his fortune came from. And if you read some of the background of the at the time, the political background at the time, there was still was big temperance movements. I think there was an element, not the deciding factor, but there was an element of, well, we've made a lot of money here. Maybe we don't want to continue in this trade. There's other opportunities to be had. And it's maybe a bit unseemly for, you know, the, wow, that the, is... politic, the political elite of, of Belfast to, to still be in, involved in the liquor trade. If you like. Crazy, crazy, crazy times. So... so they tried to sell it and there wasn't really that big a taker. Probably in the back of people's minds, are we going to, is there going to be another prohibition? Irish whiskey's reputation had floundered a bit because the... the bootleggers in the states if you want to copy something you try and copy the best people who are making fake goods these days they make rolexes and and patek philippe's they don't you know they don't make bootleg timex watches you know yeah, i'm with you they go for the big stuff that's really the the luxury brands irish whiskey's reputation had gone a bit and i think there was just a lot of little deciding factors and they thought go into liquidation we'll sell off all the assets and so on and so forth and that's really what happened to them I'll give you another idea. In 1941, one of the, the whiskey warehouses that they had, which is an, was on Alfred Street, just opposite St Malachy's Church, it was damaged in the Blitz. So even them closing in, in 36 all the way to 41, they still had warehouses full of whiskey ageing. Because they were still selling whiskey, the brand and the Donville Park and the name, there was that recognition of that Belfast distillery. It was always thereabouts, and there were some bottles of it, bottles of it sitting in shelves for, well, really for decades to come. And then in 1975, a guy called Bill Richter decided to bring it back again. What he did was he basically just walked into an off-sales or a, a, a pub in Belfast and bought two bottles of Dunvalls. Now, remember, this is 40 years nearly after the distillery closed. 
you're still able to buy this and it probably was reasonably cheap i would have okay. thought it wouldn't have been very expensive he took the two bottles to scotland and went to a distillery or a couple of distilleries over there i don't know where and asked the blenders could they recreate this and they did now he brought it back out but he, <laughs> this sounds this sounds bizarre but it's nonetheless what happened he brought out two types and he brought out a white label and an unblended deluxe old malt and a blended scotch so there's a dunville's blended scotch and it was now it was short-lived but it was triple distilled so he brought this this range out it didn't really take off it didn't do very well it's a bit of a trailblazer trying to reinvent stuff he might have one of them was one of the first guys to reinvent stuff he would have been yeah and the fact that he brought it back and and decided to try and trade on that name fair enough you know good on him he was the right man in the right place well maybe the wrong man in the right place is maybe a way of putting it but he 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 had that idea the name he sold it on it disappeared a few different times and then Eglinville, our friends down in county down down strangford loch they set up their distillery Eglinville distillery and they got offered the chance of buying it buying the name the brand so they did smart move well yeah maybe at the time maybe didn't necessarily think they had as much traction as they were ever going to get with it or certainly as they have done but you have to remember there's lots of these companies doing it now but to actually be one of the first to do it and to say we can have that old name but hang on we've got lots of old pub memorabilia that still turns up at auction we have a heritage and a, a bit of history tied up with that and bringing it back I'd love one of those mirrors. You said those yeah. mirrors, you can still get them for about 400 quid and that they'll be worth a lot more in the future. Probably starting to think they're worth a bit more than that now. They keep going up and up. People love the old pub mirrors. That branding, that advertising, still all out there. You know, there's still lots of it about. So you kind of have all that. Eglinville buy in their stocks. They buy in their whiskey from well, a few sources. And they have Dunville's VR and the Dunville's Three Crowns and now the Three Crowns Peter. But those come in and the, the labelling on them is beautiful. And there's their representations, they're modern versions of the old labels. They've kept them really, really quite nice. And Dunville's now is back and it's a big name in Irish whiskey. They don't sell massive volumes of stuff. But what they do sells fabulous quality. They're even uh, sponsoring the distillery football team now. Well, <laughs> it's the yes. Eckenville Distillery's the, the shirt sponsor. sponsor. Like I said, the Dunvalls family established a football team for their workers, and that football team still carries on, albeit it moved from Belfast to to Lisburn. But Eckenville have tied up. They do the sponsorship deals between the naming of the streets, the public park, the Sorella Trust. The football team and now the whiskey coming back again Dunville's never really went away they've always been there thereabouts and when you go to Belfast Zoo that collection of animals was originally owned by Robert Dunville that was his private animal <laughs> collection uh, he had a tame bear at one point called Bruno now to show you just how wealthy these people were he used to take Bruno with him including going to his house in London, where he used to keep the bear in the house, much to the chagrin of the servants. So, so he used what, to size, what size of bear was it? A lot bigger than Paddington, I would imagine. I'm, I'm going to imagine it was. I don't, I, I don't know what species of bear it was. The house was in Portland Place, which if, if you've ever been in London, it was an extremely swish house. These were very well-heeled people. Um, Bruno the bear, he used to take it 
with him, with him. It's a wonderful story. It really is. It's nice to see it all coming back again. If you go on, you can go through the newspaper articles of the time and Dunville's name constantly pops up. They were very active in social life. They were uh, politically active. John Spencer Dunville won the Victoria Cross in the First World War, died over there, unfortunately. So they are very much an intrinsic part of Belfast and I know that the guys down at Eknonville do genuinely take it very seriously. I heard uh, Jarlath Watson, who's a brand representative down there one time, brand ambassador down there, saying that it's very much seen that they are just custodians of the Dunville's name because they respect what they actually did for the city of Belfast. Impressive stuff. Fascinating story. The Dunville's of Belfast. Well, Marty, what can I say? Fantastic history. It's a bit of a funny one for a distillery because it's not necessarily about just the distillery. It's about the family and the wider aspects of an entire city, really. Great stuff. Catches on the live show. Saturdays, 10pm, YouTube, Facebook, and wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word, and if you'd like to buy me and Marty a coffee, buymeacoffee.com slash Irish Whiskey. <laughs>